The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC and welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. We're glad you're here. I hope you uh, have enjoyed the worship so far. I need to make a couple of announcements um, and we'll follow them up with some email communication as well. But uh, the first one is next, next weekend is Memorial Day, right? So we're doing one service. All right, one service, 10 a.m. Everybody say, one service. <laughs> Lord, help me preach to these people who are half dead right now. <laughs> 10 a.m., say 10 a.m. All right, good. That's much better, much better. You guys need to get here early enough to drink a few cups of coffee before you expect me to <laughs> teach you something. Anyway, I feel the same way sometimes. The second announcement is, I think on June, we're going to flip back to two services. We'll try it out, but we're going to adjust the time of the second service. So it won't be 1045 if, if we're going to see how it works, 1030, all right? But we'll email you on all of that. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to teach you about today, okay? We've been talking about hope. And so maybe you came in this morning and you're needing a little hope. And hope is an interesting thing uh, because we need it when um, we're at a lowest moment and sometimes we don't know how to find it. We don't know how to stir it up inside of us because it feels like everything around us is falling apart. And I keyed in on this verse out of Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope. Now, this word endurance here is the Greek word hypomone, and it means the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety, even in the greatest trials and sufferings. And so we see that, um, like we, we think about men, Paul is saying here, you guys are going to, now he's talking to first century Christians and he's writing this letter to them and he's saying, man, you guys are going to face things where you're going to go through an incredible amount of trials and sufferings. And he says, when you do, like the scripture was written in order to create through encouragement that it would provide hope. And so we can get in the Word, and we can look at what the Word is teaching, and it has the ability through this endurance and in this encouragement that we see in other people that it can move in our lives and create some hope for us. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm kind of feeling a little hopeless, um, how can I stir some hope up inside of me? I'm going to teach you how to do that today because that's vitally important to continue in your journey with the Lord. Now, when we think of the Old Testament, a lot of times people question it. They're like, man, the Old Testament doesn't have relevance for today. And some of the stories of the Old Testament, people kind of have a hard time wrapping their minds around. And sometimes people will be very, very critical of the Old Testament. But what Paul is saying here is that the Old Testament will produce hope for us as we dive into it and we study it and we read it. 
And so the Old Testament is absolutely fascinating because that's ha- that has to be what Paul is talking about because he's actually writing what we would call the New Testament at this particular moment in time. So he's certainly not just talking about the New Testament, but we have the advantage of having both the Old and the New um, in our lives as we read it. And so as we, as we go through some of the Word, then it has the power and ability to do some stuff in us. Now, the Bible like is a document that describes itself as being alive and active. And so it's alive and it's active and it moves inside of us and it does a work in us. And it actually has the ability to create passion. And passion is so vitally important for you as a believer. Now, if I ask you, I'm going to give a little test here for those of you who've been coming. What's my new hobby? Pickleball. Like, I love pickleball. Now, how do you know that I love pickleball? Because I'm passionate about it and I've been talking about it. You don't have to spend very much time around me and I'll just start to tell you, man, I've started playing pickleball. And so I talk about pickleball all the time because I'm passionate about it. And that's what happens when we have passion for something. So if we can have passion for the things of the Lord, if we can have passion for what God is doing in our lives, then all of a sudden we will find ourselves talking about it. Watch this. Now, when it, so Paul is saying, look, man, everything that was written was written to create some hope in you as you find the endurance and the encouragement in these people. Now, Jesus comes and he lives for three years, or he lives for 30 years, 33 years, most scholars agree. And so he has a three-year earthly ministry. So he activates his ministry, and for a three-year period, he's walking with these people, and he's teaching them things from the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament to bring about a new, um, a new way to think about who God is. He is the fulfillment, he says, of everything that was taught in the Old. And as he's doing that, um, people are learning, but then he's crucified, and then he rises from the dead. And so even after... He rose from the dead. It became more critical that he taught the people. He made appearances to over 500 people, say they they interacted with the risen Christ. And as he would interact with them, one of the things that he would teach them is he would show them and explain to them how he was in the Old Testament. And, And then it would do a work in them. If you remember, like, the apostles, they said in the book of Acts, when things started getting real busy in the church, they said, we need to have some help. They set some men aside who were filled with the Holy Spirit to help with some of the ministry needs of the church so that they could give themselves fully to the word of God in prayer. And so they were, they were captivated by how they were going back in the Old Testament and they were discovering all these things that Jesus had said and how he had fulfilled them and that's how we end up with the New Testament is they're writing a lot about it. Even Jesus, post-resurrection, he kind of interacts with these two dudes. And um, we find this story in Luke chapter 24. It's called The Road to Emmaus. And these two guys are leaving Jerusalem. They had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. And all of this stuff happened with Jesus. Jesus had been crucified. It was the trending topic of the day. And then they were all talking about it. Well, they're making their way back home. And all of a sudden, this stranger starts working, walking with them, and they don't know it's Jesus. Somehow, miraculously, Jesus is in his resurrected form, and he didn't make himself known to them. They don't know they're talking to Jesus. They think they're just talking to some stranger. 
And so as they're talking and walking down the road, he starts asking some, some questions about it. And they're like, man, haven't you heard about any of this thing? Uh, the whole, all of Jerusalem is in an uproar about it. And so they start talking to Jesus about it and telling him. And then it says that Jesus started to talk to them, but they didn't know it was Jesus yet. And in verse 27, it says this, and this is the resurrected Christ doing this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament and he starts showing them how Jesus, whom they've been telling him about as, as the whole city of Jerusalem is in an uproar over what has just happened, he starts explaining to them how Jesus, um, he himself, um, was in all the scriptures. And then it says in verse 32, it's a really cool story, you might want to read it this week, but you drop down to verse 32 and it says, after Jesus revealed himself to them, because their eyes were open and they recognized that it was Jesus, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so what we see is the word is designed to generate hope by blowing your mind and igniting your heart. So Jesus said the greatest, one of the greatest commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. So a lot of times we're good at trying to love God with our soul, but we don't understand that it's also imperative that we love him with our minds and our hearts. And so how can we love God with our mind? Well, we can take the word and the word will begin to blow our minds. And as our mind is blown, then our heart is ignited. And we find ourselves talking to people about Jesus when we never did intend to, because it's something that we're passionate about. So evangelism is not, oh, I'm going to conquer my fears and I'm going to muster up the courage and I'm going to talk to people about Jesus. Evangelism is God is doing such a work in my life. He's doing such a transformation in my life. He's blowing my mind, igniting my heart, and all of a sudden it just comes out of me, okay? And that's what I try to do in preaching. I'm, I'm just studying and I, I see something, I'm like, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday, Right? And I, I'm passionate about what I'm talking about because my heart has been ignited. And the more the Lord blows my mind, the more my heart gets fueled and ignited. And the more that I want to talk about it and share about what the Lord is doing in, in my life. And so this is so vitally important for us to be able to develop the passion that is necessary to walk in obedience to who Christ is. And so when we look at um, the word, we have to understand that I'm always challenging you to be in the word, be in the word, man. I, the, the word is not a book that teaches us morals. Okay, now it does have morals in it. But if we look at the word and we go, man, it's going to help me to be a more moral person and a better citizen or whatever, and I'm going to learn how to live according to the Bible, then we're approaching it the wrong way. We will never be motivated to, to read it if you think that that's what it's designed to do. That's not what it's designed to do. What it is designed to do is to get a hold of you and change you. It's alive, it's active, so it transforms you. And the, the, so they, even the Bible, the, the, the early apostles, they taught us, James said, faith without works is dead, Okay. So, so we have to have faith that produces work. But the problem is, is the flip is true. The, the, the 
Adver- the opposite is true as well. Works, trying to work toward faith will never work. The more you work, you can work and you can approach your Bible and you can start trying to read it and you can go to church and you can give and you can serve and you can work, 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 work and never create any faith. But if you create faith, you can't keep from creating works. And that's what I'm talking about is how the passion is ignited in us and all of a sudden we're talking about it because it's having such an impact in our lives that our faith is increasing and it's starting to cause fruit to grow in our lives and it's producing works. And so we look at this and we go, man, there's a way for me to be really super motivated to be in the word and it's not because I'm going to become a moral, per- a, a better moral person. I'm going to be a better uh, individual and, and, and I'm going to be a better Christian. No. The, the way to approach it is to allow the Lord to use the word to ignite your heart by blowing your mind. Now, we can look at the word and we can say, man, you know, uh, the Old Testament, sometimes what happens is people lift out a particular story and then they make a, a critique against it. And they say, this is why you can't trust the Bible. And so you might be watching on the History Channel or something. They they put up the uh, a story about Jesus, and they have these professors, okay, of theology. They're generally liberal professors, okay. What what does that mean? It means that they believe a watered down view of the Scripture. They're teaching theology much like um, you you would teach a lot of other things in in humanity apart from actually believing that the Bible is the word of God. They have a very liberal view of it, a very low view of scripture. You don't necessarily see guys like me, professors that would be at a college that I would go to to be trained on those shows because they have a much higher view and a much higher view in their belief of miracles and the possibility of miracles. And so sometimes you'll see and people will, they'll, they'll, you'll watch those shows and you get confused. Don't always think that the th- stuff you watch on cable television, just because it says it's about Jesus, it doesn't mean the same kind of teaching that you would get from, from a person like myself. It can be very messed up. So don't just I would say, don't take those things as gospel. They're interesting. You can pick up some things, but you got to kind of filter a lot of it. Well, a lot of times you'll see people take a passage of scripture in the Old Testament and then try to make a case because they're, they're making this one passage of scripture look foolish. And that's not the way we approach the Bible. The Bible is not a book that we, look, we read and it has a beginning and an end. Okay. Now the book of Genesis talks about the beginning of creation. The book of Revelation talks about how everything will end. But the Bible is a collection of 66 different books. Okay. It's not written by one person. It's not written by a group of men. It's written by all kinds of different people. It's written, some of it's written by kings. Some of it's written by shepherds. Some of it's written by rich people. Some of it's written by poor people. Some of it's, it's, it's just got all kinds of different authors. There are prophets that have written some of it. Uh, and there are farmers that have written other parts of it. There are fishermen that have written parts of it. And some of them wrote it at this period of history. And some of them a hundred years later would write another thing. And they didn't know they were writing the Bible. They didn't know they were writing 
the word of God. They were hearing from God. They felt that God had called them to write down what they had written, but they had no idea that 2,000 years later, we would have a collection of works and their work would be in it. We would call it the Biblios, the canon of scripture, and the church would recognize that the power of God was in it and it would be viewed as the Holy Bible. And it is the Biblios, a collection of works that has harmony, that has been attached to a prophet who everything the prophet prophesied actually came to pass and that when you practice the things that were taught that what that prophet wrote it actually brought power and transformation in your life and so there's not some committee like we go okay let's put together a committee here at church and say who likes to who likes to put tulips in the flower bed right that's not how we got the Bible. This thing, like the Bible was recognized through the church over a course of years early on, and God is the one who was preserving it and, it, and it carries this incredible power and authority with it. And so when we look at it, what we've got to be looking at is um, like the harmony of it. And so sometimes people will look at the scripture and they go, oh man, I don't know how you could, I don't know how you could trust that. I don't know how you could have that kind of faith. I look at the scripture and I say, I don't know how you could not believe it. I don't know how you can have enough faith that you don't believe this book that has such incredible harmony that was written by all these different people over a course of thousands of years. And they're all saying the same thing. It's miraculous when you stop to think about it. And so why is it important that we have a Bible? Because the Bible tells the story, and it's one common story, it is the redemption of man. So God the creator has created all of humanity, so here we are, and he wants to communicate with us. So how is God going to communicate with us? Well, he has chosen that we are um, the only unique um, creation that he created that speaks with language. There's no other, like, you say, well, there's a form of language in the animal kingdom. When's the last time you've asked an animal to go have coffee with you and sit down and talk about things, right? We don't do that. I mean, my dog is amazing. He can say, I love you. But he really doesn't, it's only about the piece of meat that you have in your hand, right? He doesn't feel the same thing that, we, that I feel. But so we communicate with words, why do we communicate with words? Because that's the way God made us. He made us with reason so that we could think through things. We could have critical thought. And then what does he do? He takes and he comes to one of his people that he has created and uses words to make a promise. You're going to be a father of many nations. And then he fulfills that promise. So the promise happens, time goes on, the promise is fulfilled, it is written about, and it is recorded with words. And then he continues to raise up different prophets and continues telling more about the promise and how it will happen. And that's how we get Moses and King David and Israel eventually turns into a nation. They are what? The chosen people of God. Why are they chosen? They are chosen to be the instrument of which God would hammer out the language to all of humanity of who he's like or who he is. And so for thousands of years on the anvil of time through the nation of Israel, God has been hammering home. This is who I am, world. This is who I am. This is who I am. So when we turn to the pages of Scripture and begin to read it, we can begin to see the miracles that are contained within it. 
And you say, what does this have to do with hope, Jimmy? Well, today I'm going to share with you a story that I think will blow, it blows my mind. Like when I read it, it blows my mind and it ignites my heart. It was written by a prophet 530 years before the time Christ lived. So 530 years before Christ came to the planet, here is a prophet by the name of Daniel who was raised up. And we see God hammering on the anvil of history. Look at me. Look at me. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Daniel has 12 chapters. The first uh, five chapters are about Daniel interpreting dreams. So he interprets the dreams of different people. And because he has the ability to interpret these dreams, it's elevated him to a position of prominence. The nation of Israel is in captivity in Babylon. And so here Daniel is having these, um, or he's interpreting these dreams and God is using him to interpret them for other pagan people. And now he finds himself in a position of leadership. And then we look at um, uh, chapter 7 through 12 and Daniel's having dreams that he cannot interpret. One through five, he's interpreting other people's dreams. Seven through 12, he's having dreams that he cannot interpret. So the angel of the Lord comes and helps him make an interpretation. And then we have chapter six, right smack dab in the middle. And Daniel recalls an account where he is thrown into what is known as the lion's den. It's usually a story that you only hear about um, in kids' church or Sunday school or something of that nature. You don't hear about it a whole lot. It's one of the really cool stories of the Bible. It's right in the middle. Why is it right in the middle? Well, as Americans, when we write, what we do in the Western world is we put the climax at the end. Jewish authors did not write that way. They put the climax right in the middle. So sandwiched right there in the middle of Daniel is the meat of what this book is all about. And there's a very powerful story where Daniel um, ascends to a position of prominence, and then um, he is, uh, like, he almost loses his life. And so just for the sake of of making sure I don't miss anything, I'm going to take you through it, and then I'm going to teach you how we see, because here's what I want you to see, is you can take any place in the Bible, and you can cut it, and it will bleed Jesus. Like you can go to Genesis and you will find Jesus. You can go to um, Exodus and you will find Jesus. You can go to Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And sometimes you see Jesus and Jesus is never mentioned. And this is one of those times. And so let's just watch 530 years before Jesus was ever born, we'll see him in the story of Daniel. And so as we start in chapter 6, just follow along with me. It says... It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So the king's kingdom is growing and he recognizes he needs some help. And so the way that he's going to institute his government is he's going to have 120 people that are responsible for a lot of different areas in the kingdom. He's going to have three administrators that um, those 120 leaders have to answer to. And that says that now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He was going to become number two out of the three or number one out of the three and number two only to the king himself. 
At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his uh, conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could not find any corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. They're like, man, this, this bro, he gets everything right at work. And the only way you're going to trip him up is if you go to uh, figure out a way to get around what he does to God. Because the only thing that he does better at work is how he worships his God. And so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Right there, he should have known that they were playing into his ego. Oh, king, may you live forever. We've got together and we see some things that we think would be awesome in your kingdom. And so what do they say? The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, and advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So they come to the dude and they're like, hey, king, man, we, we think that we see you're doing such an amazing thing that everybody ought to worship you and no other God ought to be able to be worshiped except you. People can only pray to you for 30 days. And if they violate that, they go into the lion's den. No, Daniel wasn't going to do that. And they knew that. It says, no, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a, a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. What that means is that the way that government was instituted, once the king put something in writing, he couldn't take it back. And that's why they had him write it down. And so he can't even get out of it when he finds out what has happened. And then he said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now look what's happening here. When you talk about creating hope, Daniel is at the pinnacle of leadership. He is ascended by following God all the way to the top. And just in a moment, somebody has set him up and now he finds himself being thrown in a pit where lions are hungry that are about to eat him. He's about to be executed. 
And he never wavers in the midst of it, but we can't miss the fact that we're dealing with a real prophet of God, a real man that has incredible faith nonetheless. But uh, you, you have to look at him and go, even though he had incredible faith, he had to have struggled. I mean, I mean, what does it feel like for, even though you believe in God, what does it feel like for them to take you and throw, like you know you're about to be eaten alive by alliance. And he never wavers. He's just pressing on through it. And, and the king doesn't want to throw him in there. They've just set the whole thing up. And now he is doomed. And the king can't do anything about it except that he is going to pray for him. And so it says that a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles. So that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's den? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions and they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now this is, here's, here's just a side note, Okay. A lot of times you will be tempted and people will start doing something and you can get caught up in it and you know that it's wrong and you think, well, I'm kind of caught up in it. You got to be careful because there are consequences when you walk in rebellion against God and those consequences will not only impact you. And when you recognize and the power of the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you find yourself in a situation where you know people are compromising, you better pull yourself out of that because you're not only putting yourself at risk, you're putting your entire family at risk. Watch what happens. It says that as Daniel is lifted out and no wound is found in him, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And so we think they go, that's a really cool story. But you said Jesus was all over it. Well, I'm going to show you what that is. One, we can take away and we could go, man, like the takeaway for, my, for me, first, like as I look at it, is I need to be faithful and courageous even when I'm afraid. And God will show up and he will not only protect me in the midst of it, even if it looks like certain death for me, the Lord will protect me in the midst of it and he will defend me all the way through it. And so I, I can take that away from it. But there's something as we back away, and we zoom out 
and we look at all of Scripture, and now that we have the Old Testament, and Paul says, hey, man, everything that was written in the past, God has preserved it so that as you study it, when you feel like you're going through your own living hell and everything seems hopeless, you just get back in there and study that stuff, and all of a sudden, I will blow your mind, and I will ignite your heart, and I will give you the hope that is necessary to have the endurance and the encouragement to press through whatever you're facing in a trial or whatever suffering you're experiencing. And so how does this uh, blow our minds? Well, let me show you some parallels. Darius is the king over the known world to do as he chooses. He is the ruler. When we think about the time of Christ, what we see is that Christ always, God the Son, that's who Christ is, is always submitting to God the Father. And so God the Father is the sovereign ruler over everything that the Son does. And so we see that Darius um, had power to accomplish his will over all of the uh, known earth at that time. And God has his power to accomplish his will over the earth at any given time. The king, Darius, puts Daniel in charge of his kingdom. He is second in command. When Jesus was walking the planet, he said this in Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By who? The ruler, God. So just like King Darius gave Daniel the second in charge, he, had all, he was second in, in authority only to the king. Jesus claimed to be the same thing. Daniel is so good that the administrators are jealous and seek to remove him. Jesus is so good that the religious leaders are jealous and seek to remove him. Mark 12, 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. Daniel is blameless and beyond reproach, so they must frame him. Jesus is blameless, so the religious leaders frame him, even to the point where they trap Pilate, just like Pilate could be seen as a type of Darius as well. He says, I find no fault in this guy, but he can't do anything about it. He's caught because the ruler of the universe is orchestrating all of this. And so Mark 14, 55 says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Pilate says, I find no fault in this guy. Even his enemies could not find any fault in him. They get the king to institute a law according to Daniel, that if broken, it's ultimately a death sentence. So he, we know that Jesus is falsely accused of blasphemy, which is a death sentence. We know in Matthew chapter 26, 65, as they're trying to do this kangaroo court with Jesus, finally they're pressing him about whether or not he um, is, is the king or the son of God, and all of a sudden the high priest rips his, his garment, he tears his outer robe, and he says, blasphemous, we don't need the need for any more witnesses, and they sentence him to death. Daniel is put in a hole, and a stone was rolled over it, and it was sealed. Jesus was put in a hole, a stone was rolled over it, and it was sealed. Daniel um, also was facing certain death. Like the lions were hungry. They all were terrified. Like they knew that Daniel was going to die. But 
um, we know that a miracle takes place and Daniel is alive. And there's no question that Jesus was killed on the cross of Calvary. And just to make sure that he was dead, his body stayed in the tomb and dead for three days. And then we have the miracle of his resurrection that he appears to many. They can't find his body. Still to this day, nobody has been able to produce any evidence of what happened to the body of Christ. And also, why did all of his followers shift gears and go from being in hiding to all of a sudden they are out on the streets proclaiming the gospel because their mind was blown when they encountered the risen Christ and they couldn't keep it inside because the passion ignited their souls and that's why they were willing to die and be burned at the stake because they had their mind blown and their hearts ignited and they had the ability to love the God with all their heart, all their mind and all their soul and they started loving their neighbors like themselves. Look at this, and Daniel's enemies are destroyed by the means that they planned for him. And Jesus used the instrument of his death to defeat our enemy. That's why there's a cross out in front of our church because it is the hope of the world. It is like the equivalent of taking an electric chair and building it as a monument. The cross is an execution chamber. But we know that Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Jesus, just like the, the instrument that was intended to harm Daniel, became the very instrument that took out the enemies. The number one enemy that we face is death, and we know that we face all of evil, and the way that evil is defeated in our life is by the power of the cross. And then word goes out from the king, in Daniel's case, that all must serve Daniel's God. And so a decree is issued, and Jesus issues the same type of decree, uh, but only in a different way as he gives us the great commission and tells us in Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. How did Jesus make sure that he got all that done? How did Daniel know to write and experience all of these things? You see, when we begin to really look at what's going on here and we go, man, there's no way this can be true unless God is behind it. Like, you couldn't pull this off. It is too amazing. The word of God itself that is often questioned, that often people think that they're, oh, I'm so smart, is the most foolish and absurd thing a person could do because the more you come at it and you look at it and the more that you study it and the deeper you dig into it, the more evidence there is that Jesus was indeed God. And so what is the big idea of today's talk? Let the Bible blow your mind and ignite your heart. That's all I want you to take away is don't come at the word and go, oh, man, I got to read the Bible. Jimmy says I got to read the Bible. No, man, you got to go in. You got to, man, if I continue to go in there and I continue to read, then God is going to teach me something that's going to blow my mind and it's going to transform my heart. And as it ignites my heart, it's going to make a, different in my, a difference in my marriage. It's going to make a difference by the way I work in my career. It's going to make a difference in my parenting. It's going to make a difference in everything about me because I'm going to start walking by faith and all it's going to do is fuel my faith and the, the the brighter my faith or the hotter my faith burns the more my heart is ignited the more passionate I become and the easier it is to follow Jesus and even if it means certain death no problem
And we're living in a world where I'm not sure what it means for us in the next 20 years. And some people, I'm afraid that they're playing this game with Jesus and think, well, oh yeah, I believe. Man, you got to know what you believe and why you believe it. And as you dig into that, man, and you let the Lord do a work in your life, then you're going to see transformation take place that you, you just can't explain. And men, like, it's one of those things that we, we get into this different stuff and we try to master it, right? I think a lot of us are that way. I certainly am that way. Like right now, again, for me, pickleball. Like there's, there's bow hunting. I've, I've got that challenge. There's been other challenges in my life. And I like that. I like to change things and learn new things. And, and, and maybe you're like that. But here's the thing I love about following Jesus. As I started really like learning what it meant to follow Jesus over three decades ago. And it's still just as fun. Like I'm still having a great time and the Lord is still just teaching me stuff. And it's one of the things, man, that it just, it, it doesn't fade like everything else in my life. And it actually, not only does it not fade, it makes all these other things so much more enjoyable because the Lord is doing them along with me. And so my encouragement to you today is if you need some hope, get in the word. It will blow your mind. It will ignite your heart. And that passion will help you um, to share what God is doing in your life with other people. And so you may be here today and you go, you know, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. Like, I, I kind of got to get to the place where I believe. What do I do? I don't even know for sure that I believe Jesus was God. Here's what I would encourage you to do. You just read John out of the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. Just read it every day and say, God, show yourself to me until he blows your mind with what you're studying there and ignites your heart. Because he says in that chapter that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And unless you are born again, what that means is you are born spiritually. In other words, you're born physically, but if you don't have a spiritual birth, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. And so just sit there in John, man, and just read it and say, Lord, I, I need you to teach me what you mean by this. And I believe that if the Lord is drawing you, he says, nobody could come to the Father unless the Father draws him unto himself. If the Lord is drawing you, he will show you and he will ignite your heart. And you will, at that point, be indwelt with the Spirit of God when you lay your life down. What does that mean? That means you say, I believe Jesus is God and he begins to be the Lord of my life. I lay my life down on the altar of sacrifice and I say yes to Jesus, which means you don't know what he's gonna ask you to do. You have no idea what, it, what that means. And so sometimes that's the very thing that keeps us from making the decision, which is absolutely foolish. If he's real, why would we hold back? Why would we hold back from making that just because of what we're afraid of? If he created you, man, the greatest thing that you could do is lay your life down and give it to him. And then when you give it to him, the scripture teaches that we become the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God now, because of our confession of faith and our receiving of him as a sacrifice, which is again, we see Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, every book in the Bible, Jesus is there. And it's always about the promise of redemption. And so now that we have said and recognized Jesus is the Passover, like he is the sacrificial lamb 
that when I take him on, like when I believe in him and I confess with my mouth that I'm a sinner and I confess Christ as the savior of the world who died to forgive me of my sins, now God looks at me no longer as someone who is apart from him, but someone who is covered. Then you throw Jesus back to the Passover. What do you have to do? Put the blood over the threshold so that when you pass under it, you are covered by the blood. And so now God looks, God the Father who is sovereign, who's issued the decree that every man must be taught who Christ is. He looks at us and he goes, okay, here's a person that now has received my sacrifice and they are right with me, not based upon the work that they do, but the faith that they have. And now they can do work because their faith creates it. They believe. And so we are indwelt. He says, I will move into that person. And the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, moves into us, and we are indwelt with the Spirit of God. But it isn't in there, friend, and that's where we've messed up in, in the Western world is we've let it in with the decision to give our life to Jesus instead of recognizing, now I'm indwelt and I want to be full. <laughs> like, I want it to just run out of me. I want to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so how do I produce the fruit of the Spirit, man? It is why God has given us the Word, so that it'll blow our minds and ignite our hearts and we go along with a spring in our step because we are constantly being fueled by the truth of God instead of the lies of the world. And now faith is not hard. Faith just starts to be automatic and I'm like anything but faith would be hard for me. And now the Lord starts to use me in amazing ways and it is out of the overflow of what he is doing in my life that I am able to minister to the people around me. And I can walk and share in their sufferings and help them through the pain that they're experiencing. And so I'd encourage you today, man, like, what are you doing personally to ignite your heart? How are you responding to, like, what are you doing to consume the truth of God in your life? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And maybe for you today, you just pray a simple prayer. Lord, ignite my heart. Give me a passion like I've never known. Give me a hunger for your word. Use this, even this story that I've heard today and how I can see you in all of it to just set me on fire that I never look back. And my life is, is, is altered from this point forward. And I want you to know that I'm available to help you in any way, shape, or form on your journey with Jesus and I'm just always just an email or a text or a phone call away. So if you, you want to visit more, just put a connection card in the plate on your way out and we'll make it happen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the story, Lord. We thank you that, we thank you for the word. Help us become, Lord, more effective at sharing really what the Bible is with the people around us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be in it and to understand it in such a way that it just continues to bolster our faith. There's such an attack on the word of God, Lord, and we know why. It is because it's the secret to the power of our faith flourishing. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us a hunger for it as a body of believers that we would thirst for it, Lord, like water, and that, Lord, when we drink it in, we would comprehend your grace and all its truth. And as that happens, Lord, that you would help us to flourish 
in this thing called life until you call us home in death. We love you. We praise you and ask these things in Christ's name and amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.